Hello, and welcome to the Burning Castle podcast. I'm your host, Ashley Rinsberg. Each episode, I speak with a changemaker learning to unlock the creative potential of a world caught in chaos. These are the artists, actors, performers, musicians, designers, thinkers, entrepreneurs, filmmakers, activists, chefs, and countless others creating new paths amid crumbling institutions. You can follow us on Twitter at Burning Castle and on Instagram at Burning Castle Podcast. Welcome to the Burning Castle Podcast. I'm your host, Ashley Rinsberg. My next guest is Kate Shutt. Kate is a woman of many talents. She's an award-winning musician whose voice NPR calls glassily clear and glossily sweet. Kate is a producer who studied jazz guitar at the prestigious Berklee College of Music. As a songwriter, she draws on the time she spent at Harvard studying the influence of jazz on poetry. She's also a speaker, a coach, and an author. In this interview, you'll hear how Kate unites all the many hyphens of her multi-hyphenate life and career, and how one of the most seminal experiences of her life, serving as her mother's primary caregiver during a four-year-long battle with cancer, changed Kate and her music forever. I hope you enjoy the interview. So Kate Schott, thank you so much for joining me on the Burning Castle podcast. It's really great to see you in this context because we've worked together, talked together about different things, hopefully things that we'll get into on this podcast today because they're important. Um, But before we jump in, I just want to give people a sense of who you are, what you do, where you come from, um, and I'd rather that you do it instead of me. So please. Well, first of all, thank you for having me, Ashley. It's a real honor. And um, every time we've spent any time together, I've really been impressed and uh, the other word I'd use just sort of felt like I met a kindred spirit. (laughs) Thank you. I did. Yeah. So who am I? Uh, Kate. My name is Kate Schott. Uh, My last name is spelled S-C-H-U-T-T, but I pronounce it like shut the door is an easy way to remember it. I do two things. The first thing uh, is I'm a musician. I write and sing and perform music that sounds like uh, lost jazz standards. That's that's how I describe it, Other, AKA jazz pop kind of. Um, I also say that, you know, the songs I write or I endeavor to write, because I don't always succeed, uh, are the kinds of songs that Ella Fitzgerald or Billie Holiday would be singing if they were alive today. Mm, wow. That's a um, great way to think about it. Yeah. Uh, my Cole, my, my songwriting hero is Cole Porter. So um, mm-hmm. one of my songwriting heroes. So that's always, I'm sort of trying to always write a song that sounds like that, but of course filtered through my own perspective. So that's the first thing I do. And the second thing I do is I'm a life coach. Uh, more specifically, I'm a change coach. I help people, I help walk, uh, athletes, entrepreneurs, C-level executives, artists, um, you know, seasoned and unseasoned um, through major changes in their life. And change seems to be the through line. I have a very wide um, array of clients from all walks of life, all shapes and sizes, all ages, all everything you can think of. And the through line seems to be people trying to make or wanting to make or craving to make you know, sort of massive change in their life. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. And it's something, um, you know, just looking at your bio and, you know, at what you're doing right now, it's like, it's change is something that is, that seems to be a, a through line for you in, in your <laughs> life. I mean, it's like, you look at, um, you know, you, you've done so much and you do so much currently. And that ranges from the music to the coaching, to the work that you do for the U-Cross Foundation, which is mm-hmm. so important. Um, mm-hmm. And all, all stretching all the way back to your, your university experience where, you know, I believe you studied poetry and you can inform us exactly what it was at Harvard. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the same time, and correct me if I'm wrong again, you were a D1 athlete. Um, Correct. Yes. Which is really wild. I mean, you don't two have sports, of, two sports in, as oh, right. well. It's, it's <laughs> like you, there's not a lot of those out there. Two sport D one athlete, division, yes. division one athlete, which mm-hmm. is really the creme de la creme mm-hmm. um, of athletics while studying poetry at Harvard uh-huh. and then going on to effectively what is the Harvard of music, which is Berkeley, mm-hmm. Berkeley college mm-hmm. of music. Um, mm-hmm. So, and the, you know, that's that's a lot and it's it's a it's a lot of it's a lot of strands and it's a lot of threads and i think i think that's something that challenges a lot of people today especially because we the old model was you do one thing you do the 30 year mm-hmm. thing you get your pension mm-hmm. you retire today mm-hmm. it's not that today mm-hmm. it's you you do five things 10 things 20 things but that's really hard so mm-hmm. how is it how has it worked for you and how does it work for you um that's a great question and i think as you said, as you mentioned, you know, we're all at the speed of life now is meant, you know, so quick and we have to, we either change jobs or we change hats really quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, just to, just to make sure the record is clear, I didn't do Berkeley at the same time I was doing Harvard and <laughs> athletics. Thank God. Um, yeah. Thank goodness. Um, so I was playing sports for Harvard and studying English literature and, you know, with specific focus on poetry and then really had sort of a, a epiphany and realized that at the time, this was 1993 to 95 with my first two years at Harvard, that I wasn't going to go on and be a coach that didn't, mm-hmm. a, a sports coach that didn't interest yeah. me at that time. There were no Olympic opportunities for women's ice hockey or women's lacrosse. Um, so that wasn't in the cards for me. And I certainly, even if that, what had been, then, you know, there, there are no professional women's leagues. So I, I, my epiphany was one day when I was walking down to the rink to practice, it was like, how many hours a day do I practice my sport? You know, and it was on any given day, it was six hours, you know, and that's not including weekends when we traveled for our games and we'd be gone all weekend. And I was like, wow, what would be possible if I put two hours towards my music. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, a, that's immediately when I dr- essentially dropped out of Harvard and <laughs> went to Berkeley College of Music for a couple of years mm-hmm. and then came back to Harvard, finished my sports career, got my degree, went back to Berkeley. Um, I never graduated from Berkeley, but um, took nine semesters plus of classes mm-hmm. there. Um, anyway, so I just want to say that. So back to your real question of how do you do all these things at once? Um, Man, you know, I wish I had a great answer. I think, I think as I've gotten better at it as I've gotten older, which is presence, not perfection. Right. Um, you know, and, and I think the thing that becomes, it, it was easier back then. We didn't have, the internet was very new. 
Mm-hmm. I'm, I was still turning in papers, like, you know, typing papers up and turning them in, not emailing them in. Um, and and I, I use that example. That's sort of a strange example. But, you know, like when, we, when I was playing ice hockey, I was playing ice hockey. Right. When I was doing my homework, I was doing homework. There was no, just, there wasn't the level of distraction that there that's is right. today. Yeah. So, but of course I, I, I'm alive today. So now I deal with that. And, um, uh, you know, for me, I think it's, it's this, it's keep it holding in mind this idea that you can actually only do one thing at a time and, uh, presence, not perfection. So whatever it is you're doing, be fully present. Mm-hmm. And then, um, you know, some is better than none. Mm-hmm. So when there's a lot of things going on, um, you know, and I think the more you do that, the more you sense like, oh, I, what I need right now is to dive in fully to this thing. Um, or there's a period where, you know, you're kind of doing three or four things at once. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think trusting your gut and, um, and just knowing that if you're interested and interesting and curious, that there will always be more things than you'll you'll ever be able to do in one lifetime and and making a a kind of peace with that too. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't know if that's a great answer, but. Yeah, no, um, it's, it is, it's helpful. Um, You know, it also makes me think of when when you trust your gut, because a lot of the time we, you know, we all have this head gut, you know, dilemma. Yes. A lot of the time, I think that we hear the old, the old messages, we hear them like echoes of like, well, mm-hmm. you know, buckle down and do the one thing and stick to it. And, you know, which is true. And I do think there's an element of like, when you follow through and you stay with something for a long time, as you clearly have with your music, mm-hmm. there's a, a compound effect of skill, of mastery, of exploration, mm-hmm. um, that, mm-hmm. and it deepens. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, you know, it doesn't mean that we need to shut out the other things. And at some point, those other things can become uh, like synergistic in a way they they add even where you wouldn't really think they would add. Um, Mm -hmm. Is that that something that you found to be the case with all the many things that you currently do? Yeah, I think that there's, um, you know, at a certain point, it becomes your unique uh, angle, you know, that if you're if you're interested, I mean, for me, certainly there would be no way that I could write the songs. I, the kind of music I write, had I not studied English literature for so many years, like, and, and that's so much you, there's just no way the kind of songs I'm interested in writing. And I'm, I'm, you know, in, in, in trying to be my bet, the best or my best songwriter, you know, trying to write my best songs. Uh, require a level of um, critical analysis and as I'm writing and a level of uh, literariness for lack of a better word. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause that's the kind of song I, I'm trying to write, you know? Um, and so I think to your point, like at some point that thing that seems so different now is really fundamental to my music, you know, it's, it, 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 my music wouldn't be my music without it. Right. Um, so I think your point is really like that. Yes, of course I have a performance psychologist that I've been studying with since the beginning of the year. And that's been an amazing journey. His name is Mark Aoagi. Um, and he, the way he likes to talk about it is like, you know, you can't as a, as an elite performer in any category, 
take, take you know it does not not just sports not just music but in your own life as the elite performer of your own life there are times when you have to focus and and do the work that gets you to that level of excellence mm-hmm. um you know and so the great performers across all genres will be you know a 9.7 in one thing um and and then they might be like an 8.1 in something else mm-hmm. you know uh and then they might be and then there might be a lot of things they're like a 5 in but they don't let the fives worry them that much. Mm-hmm. They're not interested, you know, they know. And then the, you know, and then maybe the 9.7, like they're trying to go from 9.7 to 9.8, mm-hmm. you know, and maybe they're trying to bump up their eight, eight a little bit, but you know, there's always one time, there's always a point where you have to, you have to get that core competency, as you said, you know, right. and yes, then it's like, and then the other things are like, what are you comfortable with? You know, are you comfortable with an eight? Do you want it to be an 8.5, mm-hmm. you know, or are you trying to get everything up to a nine, you know? So that would be like, as an example, let's say, um, mm-hmm. you know, you're, you're, you find that for yourself or for a, any individual um, mm-hmm. songwriting might be their nine or 9.5 or 9.7, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. Um, you know, the instrument that they play right. may be right. slightly lower than the mm-hmm. songwriting. Right. So they're leading with the one thing and then mm-hmm. maybe the, you know, stage presence or whatever else might be a five and right, like, right. whatever. I'm, a, I'm, I'm a great masterful songwriter. That's okay. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. And then, and then kind of, I mean, you know, this is just but one framework to look at it and just right. to decide like, well, what's going to be worth my time, you know, like, right. well, first of all, what's the price of admission mm-hmm. to the game you're trying to play? Right. Like, <laughs> how good do you have to be to even get on the field right because there's in most um types of jobs and things you want to do there is a level that you have to the minimum standard right that you have to meet so then so okay do you do that and then it's like well where are all the are these all these other skill sets and what is worth you know what is worth your time and it's sort of like a back of the envelope type of thing you know he made me go through this exercise because as you pointed out, I'm, I'm, um, I'm interested in a lot of things. And so songwriting is one of them, but, but playing my instrument masterfully is also one of them. And I would say my songwriting is more at the level of a nine or, you know, above a nine and my instrument playing is more like an eight mm-hmm. or maybe like a 7.9. And it's like, well, what is the level of energy I need to take the instrument from, you know, the eight to the nine? versus taking the songwriting from a nine to a 9.2 or to a 9.3, you know? So this is getting ridiculous to talk about, but I think the (laughs) the point is, the point is that, you know, it's sort of like um, making peace with things being somewhat in this like state of, uh, you know, unevenness. Yeah. And it's, um, I just, there's probably a way in your life, I bet, and in what you do that you have to be comfortable with that. Um, and so, and so you are as you're developing other skills, because I can imagine, I know you're a writer and I know that when you're writing a book, you have to be okay with like the shitty first draft to use Annie Lamont's phrase, right? Oh yeah. 
Yeah, very much so. And so you don't really worry about that until you get to the end of the shitty first draft, right? Right. Well, you yeah, I think that's the optimal approach. Okay, if, if sure. You can, if you can find a way not to worry, yeah. Yeah. So you, you're comfortable with the unease of things not being perfect as yeah. you're doing them. That's really, I think that's a key part of, you know, Definitely. developing skill set. Absolutely. Because I, I think that the alternatives um, on either side of that, one side being just despair and it doesn't allow yeah. you to go forward. And the Suffering. other side being yeah. Yeah, just pain of every yeah. moment, which is horrible. Uh-huh. But yeah. the other side of it being um, kind of a, a deluded state where you're writing that first draft and you're like, wow, I'm, I'm amazing. A, I'm amazing. <laughs> yeah. this is, everyone's going to jump out the window when they read this or hear this yes. and that's yeah. just that's a, even probably worse um, yeah. than the painful state because then you're just you, you're never gonna improve so yeah and it's art i mean at the end of the day you know i mean maybe if you're making a widget it, this conversation probably applies in a different way but like a, a piece of writing a song a, you know a dance a visual artwork like let's all remember it's art and right. there is taste involved and you don't have any control over that. I mean, my, my right. example that I always use and one of my heroes is Vincent van Gogh. Mm-hmm. You know, you read the letters of Vincent van Gogh and you understand that, you know, there was a person who was doing his art, zero acknowledgement from the world. Right. And in fact, we know now that the sort of the only reason that van Gogh became van Gogh is through his wife, his, his brother's wife. Mm-hmm. who set about like making him known mm-hmm. yeah the effects of um, which we're still feeling today you know like yeah so yeah, it's, you have to crushing. remember you, an account for taste and that you may be ahead of your time you may be behind your time you may be behind your time but ahead of when everything comes back around in the circle you know what i mean right yeah and it you know it that cuts to the question of why why you're doing it and right. it, that's a question, you know, I think that's, there's never a, a single static answer that you can just mm. be like, oh, this is why I wrote it down. You know, here's the, right. here's the answer. I think it's something that also requires a play with the, that tension to say, it's part of the audience. It's part of me. It's part of self-expression. It's part of wanting to have a positive impact on the world around me. Mm-hmm. It's things you don't even think about, things you don't even know. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's, you know, it's almost that you sort of just have to, continue to explore that question and suspend the judgment at any given moment to say, well, mm-hmm. this is why I'm doing it. This is, unless it's commercial and you say, well, it's really, it's really clear. Right. My last book sold 50,000. This time I wanted to sell 75,000. That's why I'm doing it. And that's, right. that's a different thing. Right. Mm-hmm. But yeah. you know, that, I think you're, you use the word tension and that's a really great word. You know, yes. like there is this, there's always this level of tension. Um, if you're really going after something and you have to be willing to accept it. Right. And, you know, I think how, how much sleep you've had and, and how, you know, all of those sort of taking what my Zen teacher, Sherry Huber calls like taking care of the human. Mm-hmm. When you take care of the human, we can accept a lot more tension of this creative tension, this sort of, uh, you know, being working a little bit on this thing and then going over here and, you know, feeling like, oh my God, I got I to catch up over here. And this isn't quite up to the level that I'm used to, you know, like being able to sit and be with that tension and be okay with it. That's a, that's like a, 
meta skill. Yes, it, it absolutely is. And I do think that that's absolutely correct to think that um, you need to take care of the human, which I think in some ways means find a way to live life that that is a good way, you know, yeah. to the extent possible, like to mm-hmm. enjoy, enjoy the day, enjoy what mm-hmm. you're doing, take a break, mm-hmm. you know, like mm-hmm. don't, you're never going to be able to white knuckle success in the arts, maybe in other things, maybe not, but mm-hmm. certainly not in, in anything artistic or, cre- or even creative in general, because yeah. that's not what it's about. It's not mm-hmm. about driving through doing 80 hours a week, like you're working in Goldman Sachs. It's <laughs> yeah. just, that's not the point, you know? And, and I think that's yeah. the confusion is that, especially today, especially mm-hmm. in the world of the internet, where we mm-hmm. see quote unquote success, we see the person with a hundred billion followers on whatever. Yeah. And we're yeah. like, Oh God, I'm right. going to have to work so hard to get that. And you're like, wait a second. That's actually not the point. The point mm-hmm. is something very, very different. And I think that's mm-hmm. also, you know, we, you and I have discussed in the past, a different approach, a different mm-hmm. model, a different, uh, a different worldview than, you mm-hmm. know, whatever the Taylor Swift worldview to music might mm-hmm. be. Mm-hmm. And, and that is one that is about playing with tension. And, you know, mm-hmm. it's something we've talked about, um, you know, a, a mutual, um, let's say, you know, mentor from afar of ours, which yes. is, who is Seth Godin. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Um, Godin talks a lot about, you know, finding, finding the smallest thing that you can do, the smallest way that you can succeed or have an impact. And it's like, mm-hmm. when you think, for, when you think about that as the starting point, magic can really happen. And I think yeah. that's, that's something that, you know, with your work and the way that you've started to approach it, including how you've thought about uh, releasing an album into the world. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and maybe that's something you can talk a little bit more about, and and mm-hmm. what, you know what you're doing in in that regard, because I think that's something that's very important to a lot of people. Sure. Well, I, I, yeah, I just have to second or say here, here for what you said. You know that find the place, find the find the smallest amount of good you can do and do it, um, mm-hmm. and stay you know stay present to it. I think uh, is so is such a beautiful way that he puts that and. Right. It's so, you know, I think when, if we can, if we can stop our attention from being fractured all the time and remain in those moments of creation, you know, there's no, but I'm in my practice room right now. Um, you know, there's no, when I am in here and I'm solely in here and I don't have the phone here and I don't have a deadline looming, or even if I do, and I can just put it out of my head and I'm just in here to explore whatever it is I choose to explore that day, mm-hmm. you know, I drop into flow and coming out of this room, I feel refreshed, you know? And I think that's something that people can get from their work. Right. If they approach it the right way. Right. Um, so that was a little addendum to what you said, but yeah. <laughs> how did I, how did I release the record? Well, um, so this year, I finally released a record I had been thinking about for a very long time and, and uh, writing songs towards for a very long time. And the backstory, just to give some people some context, is that in 2010, uh, I was in, living in New York, actually just about to go do a kind of like a cruise ship gig, but not on a ship um, in Doha, Qatar, um, you know, playing a couple sets a night, solo music. Um, and I went home to say goodbye to my parents and my mom 
uh, told me that she hadn't been feeling well and she had just had a CAT scan and that um, essentially while I was there, the results would come in and they did indeed come in and she was diagnosed, she had a, a tumor the size of a grapefruit in her stomach and, you know, the doctor needed to operate immediately, et cetera. So basically I went from one day thinking I was saying goodbye to my parents and about literally like two days later flying to Doha Qatar to actually going back to New York, breaking my contract, unpacking my bags, repacking them, moving down to Pennsylvania where my parents lived and moving in with my parents into a childhood bedroom and becoming my mom's um, primary caregiver for the next, at that point, who knew how long it was going to be. It turned out to be five years, roughly four and a half. And then like a a half of a year kind of getting my dad sorted and back on track. Um, So, That's a long way of saying I didn't pick up my guitar for about a year and a half, though I kept notes of the things I wanted to write, the songs I wanted to write. And eventually my mom went into her first remission and I got a chance to go to the Ucross Foundation, which is an artist residency program in Wyoming. And I was luckily gifted six weeks of time there. And my mom was completely healthy and well during that time. It was like kismet. Yeah, it was amazing. Um, and I started to write these songs and fast forward to she, she died. I wrote, I wrote eight, seven or eight songs that she heard before she died. She died. And then I began writing the rest of the songs, a lot of which I couldn't write because they were from her perspective and I couldn't do it until she wasn't in her shoes anymore, so to speak. Right. Um, and then I recorded the record. Um, it's called Bright Nowhere after a phrase from the Seamus Heaney poem, a beautiful Seamus Heaney poem. Um, and I released it basically in two parts uh, because, because why not? Because I can. Um, first of all, I'm not affiliated with a label and I can do what I want. And secondly, because the material, it's not a downer, definitely not a downer, the record, but it is uh, a very sharp uh, diamond hard look at mortality. Mm-hmm. And it was, a, it was a lot, you know, it's not, it wasn't a lot for me, but I lived it. So, right. um, I released it in, in, in like in a half, basically I released one half of it, six songs, and then, uh, three or four weeks later I released the other half of it. And with all of that came my songwriting notes for the record came behind the scene video from filming it came uh, the Shane Asini poem came all these other sources that I used to write these songs. Cause um, you know, as I said, I'm very literary or literate literary writer. So I have a lot of sources. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so yeah, you know, and, and th- that was really amazing. Cause I think it was for a lot of people, a more digestible way to engage with the music. Yeah. It's also more, um, it's a, it's a way to engage. That's engaging. It's more of a participation mm-hmm. when you, you're not just looking on Spotify, you know, and flipping through, you're really entering to the world of the album. And in mm-hmm. this case, your world, because it's, mm-hmm. so, it's so personal. It's so much a part of who you are. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's a, it is a beautiful album. I've listened, I've had the privilege of listening. It's amazing. Mm -hmm. And I really recommend everybody to go listen to (laughs) it. It's that good. But, Mm -hmm. you know, I I think the key point there is that where you do something that is so personal, you give other people 
a chance to engage in a personal manner. And mm-hmm. that that is that, you know, the smallest possible good approach to it. Because mm-hmm. you're not looking for, you know, the million streams on Spotify. Yeah. That's not the point of it. The point of no. it was that engagement was mm-hmm. is that experience of it. But you know, yeah. to return to the to the experience that led that sort of gestated the album, which was mm-hmm. being your mother's primary caregiver. Mm-hmm. You know, what jumps out at me there is five years. I mean, five yes. years is a long, long time. How did you, what sustained you? I mean, I know what it's like as a writer and I'm sure anyone else out there who has a passion for something knows what it's like to be torn away from that or kept away from that thing for even a few days. Or, you know, in my case, when my, my children are born, like you have to kind mm-hmm. of stop and like of things for a long time and it's hard, but five years is a difference. Yeah. How did you continue to get through that? I mean, uh, there's so many ways I can answer that question. One is I didn't know it would be five years. <laughs> um, so, you know, we were just living day to day. She was diagnosed with ovarian cancer, essentially stage four. Um, we knew that it would kill her one way or the other. It was a very rare and aggressive form. So it was going to kill her sooner rather than later. Um, she, I was very clear with her from the day one that we weren't going to mince words about this. And we were going to talk very directly about her impending death and live, you know, the best quality life we could live, uh, you know, knowing that was around the corner. Um, and that my whole job was to maximize her quality of life. And how did I do it just day by day? And I'm not going to sit here and tell you that it was easy. It was the hardest thing I've ever done. And I've done some pretty hard things in my life. Um, but that being said, I would do it again in a heartbeat. It was one of the most, it was the most profound experience of my life. And, um, it was day by day. It was very dark. If my girlfriend was here, she would tell you that it was, it was hard on me. Um, you know, I was, living in a childhood bedroom. I was, my days were um, filled with the bare necessities as a, I mean, it's very like, it's, it's exactly like caring for a newborn. Right. You know, I haven't cared for a newborn, but I was doing the same things like right. making food, making, going to the doctor, going to the chemo suite, spending seven hours in the chemo suite, then having to spend four more in the blood transfusion room, you know, um, grocery shopping, uh, you name it. I mean, and obviously towards the end, it became much more about her bodily care. We went into hospice very, very early, which was an amazing experience. Um, but, uh, yeah, it was just one day at a time. And luckily I'm, I have surrounded myself with great mentors and, Mm. um, people who could help me be the family really. Mm -hmm. That was what my, my life coach, John Morgan, said to me at one point when I was pushing back against it all and, you know, despairing over the fact that I was watching my friends like rocket to stardom, Mm -hmm. you know, get record deals and get those 20 billion followers on Instagram. And there I am literally like, you know, changing my mom's diapers, you know, like I had really, he, he said that to me and that really helped. Like you, 
be the family. That's who you are. That's what you're doing. And, um, yeah. Yeah. You know, something you said there <laughs> jumped out at me, which is that you would do it again in a heartbeat. Mm -hmm. Um, and it reminds me of the, this, I think it's quite a well-known story of, um, I think his name was Admiral Stockton. Oh yeah, of course. Uh-huh. Yeah, so he know, was, okay. I know the story. Yeah. He was, he was flying a, uh, Navy, he was a Navy pilot, wasn't he? And he shot down over Vietnam and he, as he was parachuting yes. in, he basically realized that he was like stepping back in time. Yeah. And he was taken uh, as a prisoner of war mm -hmm. um, and held for a, a number of years. Yeah. And when he came out, that's what he said is that he, he knew, he knew while he was still captive, that that was the event that would define his life. Mm -hmm. And he knew that when it would, once it was over, whenever that would be, that he mm -hmm. would never want it to be otherwise. Mm -hmm. That it, it was him. And, you know, that's exactly what this experience was for me. Exactly. Right. right. And, you know, I think that's, um, that, that is connected to what you'd said earlier about, about the music or whatever you do being this product of the uniqueness of whoever you are and what, where you've come from. It's, there is no way for you to control it and to say, well, I want to be this kind. I want to be the author that gets the book deal out of college and, you know, just rockets to fame and has a great time and whatever. Yeah, That's like, right. it's, it's not, it's not in our control. It's not in our hands, but what is mm -hmm. in our hands is the ability to embrace the story and to say, mm -hmm. oh, actually, this is my story. Just the mm -hmm. way that you talked about the the 9.2 and the 8 mm -hmm. and the 5 being like, this mm -hmm. is the kind of artist that I am. And I'm going mm -hmm. to fully accept that. But that's the hard part. That's yes. the really hard thing that uh, nobody really talks about. And, mm -hmm. and I think maybe, you know, certain experiences like the one you had with your mother, perhaps, I don't know, but maybe help you learn how to do that very hard thing of embracing embracing fate, you know, living with a love of fate. Um, yeah, I think it was, it was not a choice right. because, you know, when I tell the story, I say like, well, you know, my mom got, got her the news and, and, and then I decided to move home and I say the word decided, but like, that is a, the wrong word. Right. There was no, it was, we got the news and I turned to my dad and I said, take me back to New York. I have to wrap my affairs up. I'll be down tomorrow. Mm -hmm. You know? And it wasn't a choice. It was like, it was, I guess, fate because mm -hmm. there was no way I was making any other decision. Right. Like it just was not happening. That was the decision I made, you know? And I made it to the very end, you know, like it was a decision that I knew there was no bailing out. Right. As, as dark as it got, there was no bailing out, um, you know, and I didn't, and frankly, I didn't even know if I'd be like, you know, I didn't even know I was open enough to be like, I don't know if I'll be a musician on the other side of this. It's such a long time to be gone from the scene, you know, uh, I mean, literally gone, like, <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, so, uh, it, it was, I mean, I still, I still have to sometimes say to myself, oh yeah, remember you like 
weren't doing music for five years. Like, so if you get a little frustrated about where things are and what things look like in your life, like, don't forget, <laughs> like, because right. it's easy to forget that I did all that at this point. I'm so far beyond it, you know? I mean, obviously it informs everything I do. And I've, I've been contacted by a lot of people who's now like, so you're the expert on death, <laughs> you know? <laughs> Because I have this comfortability, I'm very, I'm very comfortable with this, um, you know, landscape of illness and moving into it and out of it as a person who happens to live on the well, the planet of well, <laughs> of, the, of well-being currently. Yeah. Um, and I'm very able to, and that, that's, I guess, what you were talking about. I mean, in the, the, the defining thing became for me this ability to be okay with loss and grief and, and stay in that place and not have it right. rattle me. Yeah, which, you know, it, it's obviously it's so, it's so crucial in, in life to be able to accept death, not just because mm. it's a part of life, obviously it is, right. but also because, you know, um it's so much a part of love the the <sighs> presentiment of death the feeling Mic drop that, <laughs> yeah you you know that it's all going to end you know the people in your life are not going to all be there and that actualizes love the presentiment mm -hmm. of death and you cannot really fully love anything without understanding or feeling that presentiment of death as well. So I, I feel like that love and death are, are as seemingly unconnected as they are, as, as opposite. It's in mm -hmm. fact that very much the case that they're just intertwined in our lives. Um, but you, you know, nailed we, it. You said it beautifully. Thank you. So, you know, and returning to life where, where you, you went to the U-Cross um, artist foundation. residency, mm -hmm, yeah, mm -hmm. foundation. You had those six weeks. Um, you know, I think people hear those words, artist residency, and 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 mm -hmm. whatever, and they don't really know what that means. But sure. New Cross in itself and that place is very special, physically mm -hmm. special. Mm -hmm. So maybe just give a little sense of what what it is sure. and what that was like. Sure, the U Cross Foundation is an artist residency program. Um, it's so basically what that means is. Uh, an artist residency is a, a time and a space given to an artist to work on a project or multiple projects just to just do their work. Mm -hmm. um, that's basically what an artist residency is. And there's hundreds, if not thousands of them in the United States and you know all over the world. And they are on things like a ship in the Arctic or a, you know, cabin in, in a national park right. or a, a, a bunk on a train. I knew an artist who did one for Amtrak. We did an artist residency on the end track wow. cross country train. Amazing. So the U, U, what makes U cross unique is that it's a 20,000 acre cattle ranch in the high plains of Wyoming. So this is the Northern edge of the state of Wyoming. So when, when you say high plains, you really mean it. There's like not a tree in sight kind of in the shadow of the Bighorn mountains. It's utterly stunning landscape. I mean, there's just no place like it in the United States. Um, it's, it's vast, it's uh, barren, but of course not barren also when you're really in it and among it. It's tempestuous, it's uh, filled with um, mysteries. And 
So Ucrust gives nine artists um, time and space to work on their on their art. And the rule is, you know, you can't be disturbed unless the building's burning down and mm-hmm. your lunch is delivered to your door. And at nighttime, there's a, an incredible chef who's you know on staff at Ucrust who makes an incredible meal, prepares it for you all, lays it all out, mm-hmm. cleans up her dishes, leaves, and you and the eight other people have to get this gorgeous dinner to enjoy, you know, every weeknight together. And so it's a real, um, I mean, it really is just time and space to, it's to dive into something that you're working mm-hmm. on. You know, yeah. and often there's a lot of writers that where there's only, you can, there can only be two musicians at a time because we make noise and we have to have separate studios, but there's, you know, a lot of writers, a lot of painters, a lot of mixed media artists, um, dancers, choreographers, um, you know, musicians, composers. Um, mm-hmm. So it's just a really magical place. It's, it's, yeah. it's I, I just don't even know what to say about it. It completely changed my life. Yeah, I know. You know, I think for it, it sounds, um, I think it's it can sound to people something that's like, almost uh, like a resort, but yes. what, people, yeah. what people miss is that for, for artists, for creators of any kind, those two things, time and space mm-hmm. are you, you fight tooth and nail. You fight so hard for the scraps, all of your life, all of your working life as a, whatever artist you are. Mm-hmm. And to have someone just gift it, to you for six weeks it's it's not it's something that is almost permanent it's almost indelible as you know because it's so 100 percent. So. yeah and you know it's not always i mean first of all i have to say again you put it perfectly like life as an artist or as a creative being let's not even use that term because some people will be like mm-hmm. i'm not an artist but like yeah. a life life trying to create something in the world all you're doing is fighting tooth and nail for time and space to work on that project right and as you said, you know, um, and Ugrass gifts it, you know, with no strings attached. You, of course, you have to apply to get in and you have to say sure. something on your application about what you want to do. But there's no one saying at the end, um, did you create, did you write right. 2.5 <laughs> chapters of your novel? No, no one does that. It's basically like once you're there, you're there, you're there to do your work, you're there to experience the place. You're there to experience what's possible in this, with this amount of freedom. Um, I can I can remember talking to some residents, and and the residencies happen in two, four, six week chunks. So you know you don't have to have only six weeks to go. Some people go for as little as two weeks. Um, but I can remember talking to some of the moms, like the the artists that were moms, saying mm. just the thought of me not having to deal with cooking, yeah, for two weeks was like a revolution, a revelation (laughs) and a revolution in my life, in my creative life, you know, like not only did I not have to prepare it, but I didn't even have to think about it. Yeah. The mental space that opened up for them. Yeah. To write. Yeah. The mental space. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, when you, when you got back there and you're, you're working again on music, Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I think the question that I'm interested in is, about the kind of music that you create, which you'd characterized it as um, the lost jazz standards. Standards, yeah. Um, and so 
I'm curious about the jazz part, you know, because mm-hmm. jazz is connected to, I mean, obviously it's still very much alive, but it's also rooted in something that's earlier. Um, mm-hmm. how, what is it about jazz? What got you to jazz? And mm. What keeps you yeah. in, in that tradition? <clears throat> that's a great question. Um, uh, well, I'm, I grew up, I'm, I'm the youngest of three. I have two older brothers. So um, I was mostly... I never got to choose the music I listened to as a kid because of my two older brothers. So I listened to a lot of classic rock and that's deeply embedded in who I am and how I play and what I play. Um, and my first bands were cover bands playing that kind of music, Jimi Hendrix, the Rolling Stones, Janis Joplin, the Grateful Dead, the Doors, all that, all that music. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, my parents were playing Ella Fitzgerald. That, that was the, the, one of their favorite singers. So I heard and could sing all the words of the Ella Fitzgerald sings the Cole Porter songbook, you know, before I even knew that I could (laughs) basically they were, it was so embedded in, in me. Um, and so that had, that had always been there. Um, and then I studied with a guitar, my first and sort of only guitar teacher before I went to Berkeley was a major jazzer. He was like, came straight out of the bebop tradition (laughs) and, so I was hearing it and playing it in my lessons. Um, even though at the same time I was, you know, really into whatever the music of the nineties and the two thousands, you know, the current music. Um, so I guess it was always in there. And then when I got to Berkeley, I mean, it's a contemporary music school, so you can do anything at Berkeley. I mean, you could, you know, you could be doing bluegrass or newgrass there. You could be doing, um, R and B, you know? Um, but I just, I don't know. I, I, to me, my biggest heroes are those singers, Ella Fitzgerald, Sarah Vaughan, um, those players, you know, they have a complete freedom on their instrument. That's what I want. I'm interested in freedom for myself and others. And if I can play my instrument like that or have the freedom to create like that, mm-hmm. that that's kind of what I'm after. And so that's why I really dove sort of headlong into studying jazz and um, because it also gave me the skill set at a, at a sort of higher order. Mm-hmm. It's a, it's such a demanding art form. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's something um, it, it always fascinated me. I, I, you know, played a little bit of piano growing up mm-hmm. and I played mm-hmm. classical and it's kind of classical. It's like, here's the song, learn it. And mm-hmm. you know, there's a little mm-hmm. bit of room to be creative with it. But when it came to learning jazz, I was like, wait a second. I don't understand what I'm supposed to do here. Like <laughs> what notes am I supposed to play? I don't get it. Like, and and when you think about it that way, it's this open field that you have to, you, you take the core elements and you have to make something out mm-hmm. of it, which mm-hmm. I, I really couldn't comprehend it on that level. Mm-hmm. Um, but in that sense, it's something lyrical. Like you're, you're, yes, you're kind of very. like, you're adding to this thing that's constantly, it's like a artistic blockchain. Like it's just, yes, it is. That's a great, the, the tradition. Yeah. That's a great way to talk about it. And I don't know, you should, we should do, I don't know if anybody said that yet about jazz <laughs> or I haven't heard it, but it is. It's basically an artistic blockchain. I mean, every one could argue that all of music is too. Um, sure, yeah. But yeah. you know, for sure, it's the it's the learning of the tradition, you know, and the language. It's a language in its in itself, right. and then tr- learning how to speak the language, and then hopefully adding something of your own to the language if you're lucky. Right. 
Yeah. And, and that's the incredible way that it evolves and changes in a way that, you know, classical, you can still play and write classical music, of course, today. Mm -hmm. um, but it doesn't, it doesn't have that Im immediacy, in my opinion, that jazz can have mm -hmm. when you hear it in contemporary music. It still mm -hmm. feels alive. Um, mm -hmm. And I guess that's why. Yeah. And I think the edges of classical music, contemporary classical music, they're doing this kind of work. It's just a, you know, it's a different, it's a different way of getting at the same thing. I think it's a different way of getting at the same freedom, basically, right. you know? Yeah. Um, well, I think that's, that's a lot of that word freedom. I mean, for me, that's so important. Um, I've also started to think how important freedom is uh, alongside independence. Mm, tell me more. You, well, I think that's, you know, when you're talking about the freedom and within, within the uh, creative act a creative moment you are mm -hmm. free to create but to be independent means and you know in this case for, with you as an example to not be enchained to a record label who's telling you this is the kind of record we need from you this mm -hmm. is the kind of song this is you know we we need the single um, mm -hmm. you're no longer independent you're dependent mm -hmm. it might work for you as mm -hmm. it does for a lot of people but i think freedom and independence are they have to exist together because without the other one the 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 one can't exist mm -hmm. properly mm -hmm. um, and that's what i've sort of been learning about in with today's media is that media is very our media is very free from government mm. interference the government's not mm -hmm. you know cracking skulls thank god but right. the question then is are they independent is our media mm. independent of influence and i think that applies across the board to any any element of life. If you're seeking mm -hmm. freedom, you must also be seeking independence and vice versa. And I think it's mm -hmm. such an important thing to learn. And I think it's something that your story really illustrates because mm. you, you maintained that independence, even something like the experience with your mother, it was an oh, act yeah. of independence. You're, you were sort of, you put this, you put yourself in this context, but you, you did it and maintained independence mm -hmm. by doing it oh, in yeah. order to do it. Yeah, very much so. I mean, it was a free fall. It was like, a, you know, I, at times, certainly in the beginning, it was just like, I don't know where I'm going to end up. And I might not even end up as myself on the other side right. of this. Right. That, that was, I could, again, if my girlfriend was listening to this conversation, she'd chime in now and say, yeah, one of the things you, you consistently said to me throughout that experience was, I do not recognize myself. Hmm. Wow. Wow. Well, that's an interesting place to be, a difficult <laughs> place to be. But I, I think that's also, again, um, to not be dependent on identity. Um, mm -hmm. There's a great thing I just read, um, Naval Ravikant, who's this mm -hmm. a, I know who he is. A yeah. great entrepreneur for anyone mm -hmm. who doesn't know, mm -hmm. go, just go seek him out. Just yeah. type in the word, the, the word, the letters N-A-V-A-L. Yes. And one thing he talks about is that how um, decreasing his emphasis on identity makes him happier. Mm -hmm. Because then you're not married to these concepts. You're not married to I'm this and must do this and must achieve this. And you are just the thing that you happen to be in this moment that you're in, you know, mm -hmm. touching back to what you said earlier in the conversation. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And I think being a creative person, it's a, hopefully, as, if you're a wise creative person, I think you can get to that state because I often like to talk about 
you know, I coach people around songwriting or albums, releasing albums and things like that. And they're always so, you know, wrought up about how to release it. And, you know, this is the be all end all, and this is it. And I'm like, it's not, it's just a snapshot of, of, it's literally a Polaroid of you in this moment. That's all it is, right? You know, and anybody wants to say otherwise, like doesn't know what the hell they're talking about because it's just you when you decided to push send, right? You know, or release, or when you decided to, you know, have your book available, like right. whenever that exact moment you push send on it and it appeared, that was that's the when the snapshot was taken, right? Yeah, that's just opening the book and starting that story. And, and that's, yeah. again, that's something Seth Godin talks about that we we put so much emphasis on the launch where the launch mm -hmm. really means nothing. Cause you've got no idea what's going to happen next. You've got no idea what's going to happen in a year or five or 10 or a hundred years to, to the, you know, the Van Gogh point. To the Van Gogh point. Yeah, exactly. Just, you, you have you no have. idea. Right. You have and, no idea. And that's about maintaining that kind of faith in, yeah. in what you're doing. So yeah. where, where can people find, more about you where can they listen to the music um where do they engage sure well everything is on the socials it's at kate shut so k-a-t-e-s-c-h-u-t-t -T. um my website is www.kateshutt.com uh if you're interested in coaching i kind of separate those two but there's a lot of crossover uh you can find my coaching website at incandescent coaching Com. I'm not going to spell that out, but it's the word incandescent with the word coaching.com. Um, and I think the music can be heard now after we launched it sort of for everybody to take part in it. Um, we waited a, a little while and now it's available on Spotify and, and all those things. Though you can still go and get the experience if you'd like it. In fact, I just had a couple sales yesterday, which had been, it'd been a minute since someone had gone for the experience. And I was like, oh, that's really cool. And where They're can getting, they get the experience? Um, Artistshare, artistshare.com. That's the, the label that I partnered with to release it that way. So mm -hmm. it's just artistshare.com. And if you look around on that site, you'll find me. Um, mm -hmm. It may be artistshare.com forward slash Kate Shut, but it's been a minute, so I can't remember. But I'm, I'm there. In fact, the record is um, you know, uh, nominations for the Grammy ballots are up, are just about to happen. And so the record label has put it up for a number mm. of nominations we hope amazing so if, if any of your listeners are voting members of the recording academy <laughs> i'd love for you to vote for bright nowhere but um anyway it's just a great vote of confidence for my label and you know for my partner in releasing yeah. this record yeah and i really recommend people do check it out on artist share um because it is a different thing it's mm -hmm. it's just different than what we're accustomed to and it's something it's not just about listening to a track or two it's it's much more than that it's much more like um seeing an exhibit in a in a great gallery yeah. or or museum where you really have an experience so yeah I, that's a good I that's a great way to check put it, it. so <laughs> kate thank you so much um it's been a pleasure i hope we do it again let's um, do it again thank you ashley and and thank you for um just your insightful questions and your uh, there's a number of phrases that you used that I will squirrel away for uh, myself and my own use. <laughs> Thank um, you so much. Yeah.
So Kate Shot, everybody, um, as Kate mentioned, check her out, kateshot.com and artistshare.com. And um, we'll be looking forward to hearing more. Yeah. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining me today on the Burning Castle podcast. You can follow me on Twitter at Ashley Rinsberg, A-S-H-L-E-Y, R-I-N-D-S-B-E-R-G. And follow the podcast on Twitter at Burning Castle and on Instagram at Burning Castle Podcast. Till next time.